Thank you, Deacon Derek. When he mentioned Deacon Derek, he wasn't referring to himself in the third person. There are two of them. Uh, and Derek Lotta, man, he is, he, he's the epitome of um, a servant, which is really just a way of saying he's a really great, really great deacon. Um, he is somebody who sees things that need to be done, the work of the church, and just does it. Um, that's really, really wonderful and really rare to have not just one of those people in a community, but several. So thank you to all of you who uh, serve this community in that way. It takes all of us to make sanctuary the kind of place that it is. So this weekend, um, we had a chance to fly out to Las Vegas on Friday. Never been to Las Vegas before. Never really had any interest in going to Las Vegas before. And then this big sphere thing happened and they lit it up and I thought, oh my gosh, I wanna go see that thing. Um, and so for my birthday and for my wife's birthday, my mom surprised us with some tickets to go out there and see you 2 at the Sphere. Um, my dad put us on a plane. My mom got us tickets out there. My in-laws watched our kids. And so we were, we were out. Um, we were in Vegas for 26 hours. It was really, really fast. And I was hoping to get back yesterday afternoon having some kind of like dramatic experience in Vegas and I'd have like some great sermon uh, that was all about whatever this thing is that happened and I was gonna call it 26 hours in Vegas. It was gonna be great. None of that happened. We just saw you two and it was unbelievable. And then we got back yesterday and I felt like we were gone for three days. Um, and then last night I sat down to put some finishing touches on some thoughts and uh, ideas that I had for today. At about 11 o'clock last night, everything was gone. And, um, you know, this is just the work of pastoring and having to say things in front of people. And so I did what any of us would do. I, uh, I text Bishop Chris <laughs> at about 11.15, and I said, what do I do? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> so... <clears throat> 26 hours in Vegas, up late last night. I don't know what day it is right now. I'm just assuming it's Sunday because you're all here with me. The gospel text today, love God and love your neighbor. I think if we're not careful, we assume that if we love God, then loving our neighbor will just happen. Loving my neighbor isn't simply the working out of my love for God. In some ways, we think it's a kind of byproduct. Because in some ways, loving my neighbor is actually easier than loving God. God, after all, is good. My neighbor is not always good. God is faithful. My neighbor is not always faithful. God loves me and cares for me, but my neighbor does not always love me and care for me. It's also easier to love God when we confuse our ideas of love with ideas of warm-heartedness or affectionate feelings, if we think that's what love constitutes. It's easier to direct those kinds of feelings toward God who we trust is good than it is our neighbor who our experience with is less than good. But when we look at the text to see what loving our neighbor is and what it isn't, 
Loving our neighbor isn't just one of the ways our love for God spills out into the world. In fact, the opposite is true. We don't begin to love God until we have loved our neighbor. John in his epistle says, if you say you love God whom you have not seen and don't love your brother whom you have seen, you're a liar. For you cannot love God if you do not love your brother. You cannot love God without loving your brother. If you can't love your brother, if you can't love your neighbor who is like you, who is near you, other human beings doing other human being things, having human needs with other human needs, How can you love God who is entirely unlike you, truly other than you are, truly holy? How can you love a God whose thoughts are not your thoughts and whose ways are not your ways when you first don't know how to love your neighbor? St. Anthony the Great, he's the father of desert monasticism. He gets this exactly right. He says it this way, our life and our death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, he says, we have gained God. If we scandalize our brother, we have sinned against Christ. Notice for St. Anthony, he doesn't hear love God and love your neighbor as two separate commands, but as one command. It's the command to love God is the same command as love your neighbor. So that what you are doing for your neighbor, you are doing to God. And what you are doing to God, you are doing to your neighbor. We've often said here at Sanctuary that our faith is as corporate as it is private. It's a scandalizing question. What if that's true? What if our faith is as much about us as it is about just me? St. Anthony takes it further though. He suggests there is nothing private about our life with God. Personal, yes, but no part of our life with God and our life with our neighbor is ever just about me. Our faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. Whatever I do in public for my neighbor matters to God. Whatever I do, whenever I pray, I'm locked away in my prayer closet with just me and God, that matters for my neighbor. Think about the challenge of what he's saying. If we gain our brother, we have gained God. If we scandalize our brother, we've sinned against Christ. I think one of the dangers is that we hear this command, love God and love neighbor, We hear it in a way that it sounds only like law and nothing like gospel, nothing like promise, nothing like good news to us. We hear the command and think, I'm not capable of being faithful, being obedient to that command. It's too much for us. Another way we hear it is that we hear it and we receive it We understand the promise in it. We want to respond. We want to do that thing, but we don't know how to love our neighbor. We want to be obedient to God's command, but we don't have any idea where to begin. So we don't. 
We never start because we don't know what it looks like. So what does it look like really to love God and to love neighbor in a way that's, that's fitting for our lives? Somehow we have to learn to hear this command as promise and not as judgment. We have to learn to hear it as gospel and not law, as, as invitation and not burden. In this way, the command is not about you suddenly becoming something that you're not. It's about God drawing out of you the very life that God has put in you to live. And here's the trick. God has graced your life with everything you need to fulfill this commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. This past week, my two oldest kids were sitting down in the living room to watch a show on the TV. And because they're 10 and five, they couldn't agree on what show to watch. So a kind of wrestling match over the little Apple TV remote ensues, right? And because we live with 10, five and two year old, we keep that little thing in a case so it's like easier to find because if you've ever lost an Apple TV remote, you know it's just like gone. So we keep it in this little thing and in the middle of their wrestling over the remote, they accidentally rip that silicon case in half. So they come into my office, they show me the case for the remote that they ripped in half, and I said, hey, it's fine. These kinds of things happen. Here's what we're gonna do. You're both gonna go to your rooms, you're both gonna open your piggy banks, and you're gonna pull out half the money that it's gonna cost to replace that. It was $7, so settle down. <laughs> that includes shipping, it was seven bucks. They each owed me $3 and 50 cents, right? The hardest part of it was counting the money. They're fine. So they go off to their rooms, they open their piggy banks, they pull out $3.50, they put it on my desk, I ordered a new case, it was here the next day, problem solved. Later that night, after they'd gone to sleep, I gathered up that money that was on my desk and I snuck back into their rooms while they're sleeping and I put that $3.50 back into their piggy banks. Now they have no idea I did this. To them, it still hurt to pay for the thing that they broke and to bear responsibility for it. But I knew that the very thing I was asking them to do, asking them to be responsible for, was never gonna be something that they had to bear the weight of. I rigged the game for them. And God does the same thing with you. He does the same thing with me. God's not asking you to be someone you're not by loving God and loving your neighbor, but to be the very person that God has created you to be. God is drawing that life out of you, not trying to cram that life into you. God's not asking the impossible from us. He's asking us to be true to what it is to be creatures. So what does it actually mean to love God and to love our neighbor? How does that actually translate into the life that I live with my wife and my kids, with my friends and my family, with parishioners, with people I work with? I think one of the difficulties we have as people living in our time is that we've been so deeply Christianized. We've been drenched in Christian ideas that the deepest truths of our faith have become kind of vague, ambiguous concepts 
more than actual concrete specifics about our life in Christ. And I think that's true about what it is to love God and to love our neighbor. And it's difficult, not just because we tend to lose touch with what's most real, but because concepts and ideas are way sexier than what reality turns out to be. So if I were a better preacher than I am, I could get us all ramped up and excited about loving God and loving our neighbor, and we're, gonna, we're just gonna go love the world into an oblivion, right? But when loving your neighbor means not ignoring the guy with the cardboard sign at the intersection, praying for the light to change or for him to walk by while you try not to make eye contact, suddenly loving God and loving your neighbor isn't a very sexy idea. So what does it mean? How do we come to terms with it and to translate this idea of loving our neighbors into the, the context of our actual lives? What do we do? Across the gospels, Jesus' outline of the greatest commandment is presented in different ways. And in Luke's gospel, a lawyer comes to Jesus and begins to ask him questions. Luke 10.25 says, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we don't know what his motives are here. We don't know if he's being hostile toward Jesus, if he's being sincere. Luke seems to be suspicious of him, given his characterization. He's stood up to test Jesus. But we don't know that to be true. Maybe he's interested in knocking Jesus down a notch. Maybe he's drawn to Jesus and wants to know more. We don't know, but Jesus turns the question back on him. He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? How do you see this worked out? The man answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. And all of us teacher's pets go, yes. Can you imagine like being vindicated by Jesus? Like you've done the right thing. Do this, he says, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? But wanting to justify himself. Even this line, I think there are a couple of ways to hear it. It could mean that this man feels guilty, so he's trying to find a way to come to terms with his own guilt. But I think we can also hear him as asking the very question so many of us have wanted to ask. The man is pressing past ambiguity towards specificity. He wants to know, who am I supposed to love? Who is my neighbor? He's not trying to sneak one past Jesus. He's trying to bring his own life into alignment with what he knows to be true based on the scriptures and based on what he's witnessed in Christ's own life. But he doesn't know how. Like us, he doesn't know what Jesus actually means. Love my neighbor. Okay, how do I do it? What does that mean? What does that mean when my boss speaks dishonestly about one of my coworkers behind their back? What does loving my neighbor mean if a sex offender moves into my neighborhood? 
What does it look like when that person is slandering my name and they're actively seeking to do me harm? Whatever it means, it can't just be some vague ideas of fondness, some warm fuzzies that I feel toward them. Remember what Jesus says, not feel this and you will live, do this and you will live. Well, Jesus, what do I do? (laughs) Again and again, this question, what do I do about loving my neighbor? And Jesus responds to him with this story, the story of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus says, and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put, on his own, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Notice the lawyer asked Jesus this question because he wanted to know how to sort out his relationships. Who is my neighbor? But what Jesus has done by by telling the story in this way is he's turned the question around. The question is not, who is your neighbor? The question is, will you be a neighbor to anyone that you meet? The question isn't, do you have neighbors whom you have have to treat lovingly. The question is, will you be a neighbor whenever you encounter need? The question is about you, it's not about them. While we're busy trying to divide up our relationships between those who are worthy of this care and those who aren't, Jesus says everyone is worthy of this care. You have to go and live it. You are the neighbor, that's the point. Everyone near you who is in need is there for you to be a neighbor to. So Jesus asks, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? And the man replies, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Here's the heart of it. Loving your neighbor is as specific and concrete as being merciful to those who are in need nearest you. Loving your neighbor is being merciful. But again, mercy isn't a feeling. It can be borne along by feelings. Remember, the Samaritan is moved by pity. But his mercy is not, it's not, what pity looks like. It's not just having the feeling of pity. This story could have read that he sees the man, he's moved with pity, and then he goes on his way. I think oftentimes in my life, and maybe you feel this way too, I'm moved with pity 
when I encounter need. I have the right feeling. The right emotion wells up in me. I just don't know how to translate that feeling into action. Martin Luther King, when he was preaching on this passage, said, the priest and the Levite asked themselves, what will happen to me if I care for this man? But the Samaritan asks, what will happen to this man if I don't care for him? The key here for us is that mercy is not just a feeling we feel when we witness someone in need. Mercy is what we do when we encounter need. St. Peter of Damascus says it this way, the greatest thing is to heal a person. The greatest thing is to heal a person. It excels all other virtues because among the virtues, there is nothing higher or more perfect than love for one's neighbor. There's nothing greater than to heal a person. So here's what I think we have to hear. The call of God to love our neighbor looks like the call of God to show mercy to the people who are near us, who are hurting. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. This parable for us, it's good news because it means that we don't have to waste our energy and our breath trying to figure out who is worthy of mercy and who is worthy of healing. It has nothing to do with them being in or being out with their holiness, with their sinfulness, with their intentions and their desires. If someone is in need, the call of God on us is healing them through mercy. Anytime we're involved in discussions on who's deserving of mercy and who isn't, we've already ex- we've started to expose the, the twistedness of our own hearts. All we know is that we are called to be a neighbor to the person right in front of us who is hurting. And if anyone comes along and asks if they deserve that kind of care, if they deserve that kind of mercy, I don't know what that means. That question doesn't even translate for me. What do you mean do they deserve it or do they not deserve it? It's mercy. Those questions don't register in the kingdom of God. After all, that is the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We all, every one of us, were that person who needed mercy, who needed healing, who needed care. We were, in Robert Capon's words, we were the last, the least, the lost, and the dying. We were the broken and the left for dead, and we didn't deserve the attention that we received. But God found us in our lostness and in our brokenness and in our dying and didn't stop to ask whether or not you were going to make something of yourself someday. God didn't ask what you were gonna do with this gift that he's giving you. God isn't looking for an outcome, like a return on his investment. God does not make investments. God gives himself. And God gives himself to us because all he cares about is our good. All he cares about is our healing. 
but we're asking the wrong kinds of questions. We are people who care for those in need, period. A couple of things about this parable I want to point out, and then I'll be done. First, Jesus is careful to say that all three of these men see the man on the side of the road. They all see him. But the Samaritan sees him, is moved by pity, and then he sees to him. It's not enough for us to just see needs. First, just be aware of what's going on in the world. We're all inundated with the awareness of the needs of others all the time. It's not enough for us to have pity. Most of us have the appropriate feeling when we encounter needs. We need to be people who see others, who see their need, and then see to their needs. One of the diseases I think plaguing our world right now is all of the awareness of others' needs without addressing their needs. We see them without seeing to them. We can't just feel something. We have to, we have to bring something to them. We have to bring mercy to them. And usually when we start talking about doing something about the problems of the world, we pretty quickly start to ask, well, what can I do? What can I do about racism in my city? What can I do about xenophobia in my town? What can I do about the victims of yet another mass shooting or bombs being dropped on babies half a world away? And we start thinking about pains that are so big and so deep-rooted that we just get overwhelmed. What can I do about all of that? But here's the deeper truth. Everyone you know is in need. Everybody you know needs healing. If we could really be honest with each other, just for a moment, if we could really talk about what's going on in our lives, we'd all realize how desperately in need we all are of being healed. It's true of everyone in this room. It's true of the kids down the hallway. It's true of the woman who sleeps on the stoop at the end of this building. It's true of the waiter and the waitress that you're gonna encounter at the restaurant after you leave here today. It's true of every person in your family. It's true of every Palestinian and every Israeli. It's true of every Russian and Ukrainian. Everyone you know is in need, whether you realize it or not. Everyone you know. That's not to say that every need is the same. I think we get that. But the call on our lives is to see the needs that are right in front of us and to see to them. That means we, we have to find a way to say the right thing or to know when to keep our mouths shut. We have to know how to listen to them, to give them our time and give them our attention and to give them our money. And notice what the man does. When he went to him, it says, he bandaged his wounds, pouring in the oil and the wine. The first thing he does before he takes him anywhere or gives him anything, the first thing he does is cleanses the wounds. He recognizes the wounds and then he does what he can to keep them from infecting, to keep them from getting infected. A couple of things about this. When we, when we start to move toward those in need, we might get a little bloodied ourselves. It might be messy kind of work for us to care for others in the way 
that we're called to. We all know what it is, metaphorically speaking, to get bled on by someone else, maybe literally speaking. I don't know what you do during the day. To get bled on by other people, someone who's been wounded. Sometimes it looks like that gossipy comment that you hear at lunch. Sometimes it looks like witnessing that act of passive aggression. And rather than seeing that as just meanness, rather than just seeing it as immaturity, we ought to recognize it for what it is. It's woundedness. And the way you respond to that person, the way you respond to that person who's gossiping, the way that you tend to that wound, it will either create the conditions to prevent infection or to worsen it. We can either pour in the wine and the oil or we can rub dirt in the wound. You're not going to be able to heal them in that moment but your response can be the difference between infecting or cleansing that wound for its healing. But if my response is to meet their meanness with meanness, with, to meet their bitterness with bitterness, to meet their anger with anger, chances are whatever that wound is will just be further infected. And now you've got the wound itself plus the infection in the wound. And for most of us, that's what we actually die from. Not the wound itself, but what happens to those wounds over time because people won't care for us in the way that we need cared for. The reason people lose their faith, the reason people become angry Christians isn't because of what happened to them, but because of what didn't happen to them after what happened to them. It's not because someone mistreated them, it's because none of their friends and none of their family and none of their neighbors cared for them after they'd been mistreated. Listen, we have said this before, wounds are going to come. It's just an inevitable part of living in a community with other human beings. But when the wound comes, we don't have to let that wound remain uncared for. We don't have to let infection settle in to those wounds. That's part of the reality of the work of healing. There are wounds that you can bind and you can cleanse and you can create the conditions for their healing even though you didn't infect the wound in the first place. Pour in the oil, pour in the wine and then bind them up, bind them up. This is part of the important work of healing is to provide cover for the wound. There's a text in 1 Peter 4.8 that says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers. Listen, we need people that we can expose our wounds to. Those who we can be honest with about what the world and what others have done to us and the ways that we have failed. But if you go around with your wounds open to anyone and everyone, you're not going to catch healing. You're going to catch an infection. Find those healing, protecting people in your life. Be a healing, protecting person in the life of someone else. Someone whose wounds are safe with you because you're going to keep them covered. Next, he pours in the oil, he pours in the wine, he binds the wound, and then he carries him to the inn. Part of the work of healing, part of what it is to care for people, is to know your own limitations. 
We have to know how to recognize what we can do, but also the limits of what we cannot do. We can do what we can. We can pour in the oil. We can pour in the wine. We can bind the wound. But then I have to turn you over to the end. I have to turn you over to someone who can care for you and bring you back to healing. This means not just being aware of my own limitations, but also knowing the giftedness of the people around you. There are some of you in this room, and you know who you are, that have had experiences of praying for people for healing, and strange, miraculous things have happened. And you know who you are because I've come to you when I need prayer for healing. My wife and I have been married for 11 years. We've seen some stuff but some of you have been married a whole lot longer and you've seen a whole bunch of more stuff than we've seen. So when folks come to me and my wife and their relationship is in trouble, we don't always know what to do or what to say, but Father Brent and Mother Janice always do. This is what living in community is about. It's about knowing each other well enough to know what gifts and strengths you bring to other people. That's what healing looks like, living with each other well enough, closely enough, and long enough to figure out this is where the Lord's gift and this, this is where this thing comes together to start bringing healing to people. So he trusts him to the care of the innkeeper. And throughout the church's reading of this story, the inn has always represented the church. A place of care, a place of welcome, a place of hospitality, a place of healing, a place of rest, a place of nourishment. It's interesting, I'm almost done. There's, there's, that's not what's interesting. There's something that's interesting, I'm almost done. There's only one other time in the Gospel of Luke that mentions an inn. There was no room for them in the end. Sanctuary, we will never be faithful until we realize that we will never be an end. We'll never be a place that the broken can come until we realize that Jesus is the one who had no room. We are called to be the end, to make room and to care for the ones who are broken because we live in the spirit of Christ, the one for whom there was no room. And because we are representatives of Christ, because he knows, Jesus knows what it is to be the one without a room, there will always be room in this place, in the house that he has built. The only qualifier is that you remember you belong to the last and the lost and the least and the broken and the dying. And it's there where you're in good company. You can be honest about your own needs because you're in good company because that's precisely where Jesus is. Stand with me so that you think I'm done. Our Old Testament text today is Deuteronomy 34. It's the story of, of Moses' death. And Moses dies having seen the promised land but not being permitted to go into the promised land. Moses dies and Joshua, Yeshua, another Jesus, leads his people 
into the promised land. The only way living this life is possible, the only way living in that promised land where we learn to love God and we learn to love our neighbor, the only way we can do it is by following Jesus there. It means we have to bury the burden of the law and receive the grace of the gospel because Jesus will lead us into that place. And what we find week after week is that the place where Jesus leads us is to a table. It's a table where broken bread and poured wine become his body. And as we gather around this table, as we gather around this inn where there is always plenty of room, we consume a meal that consumes us so that our lives can be broken open, so that our lives can be poured out and we can learn what it is to love our neighbor. Amen.